the return of Christ, when and how. This is our, our new uh, series after uh, Christian ethics. We're now looking at last things. Uh, the Greek word eschatos means last. Right? And the study of eschatology, therefore, is the study of last things. Unbelievers, unbelievers can make reasonable predictions about future events based on past occurrences, but in the nature of human experience, it's clear that human beings of ourselves, we cannot know the future. Uh, therefore, unbelievers have no certain knowledge of any future event. But Christians who believe the Bible, we're obviously we're in a different position. Uh, although we, we can't know everything about the future, God does. Right? And God has, in Scripture, revealed to us uh, the major events yet to come in the history of the universe. Some of them, anyway. And we can have absolute confidence that these events will occur because God is never wrong and he never lies. Of course, obviously with all this, we need to be then interpreting those scriptures correctly. That's, that's the key to everything. Um, specifically, scripture tells us about the second coming of Christ. What's called, depending on how we interpret it, but it still talks about it, the millennium. The final judgment of the living and the dead the eternal punishment of unbelievers and the eternal reward of believers and life with God in the new heaven and new earth. So this lesson is uh, our kickoff introductory lesson to last things. And we're going to be studying the question of the return of Christ, the second coming, when and how. Uh, subsequent lessons, Lord willing, will deal with the major events surrounding Jesus' return. So if you look at your handout, you can see more or less where I'm going with this. So today, the return of Christ, when and how, and then the Olivet Discourse. What is that? That means, by the way, that's Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives talking. That's what, that, that's what it refers to. It's Luke 21, Mark 13, Matthew 24 to 25. That's the Olivet Discourse. Uh, lessons 3 and 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, rapture, tribulation. That's not a secret rapture, by the way. Uh, but then we're looking at the text of the second week of sec- uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Then lesson 5. Uh, the pattern of God's saving plan for all people, so all Israel will be saved, that very famous text. Lesson six, the Antichrist slash the beast from the sea slash the man of lawlessness, all the same person, uh, in my opinion. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. Lessons seven and eight, and maybe nine and 10, I don't know, but seven and eight for sure. The millennium, looking at Revelation 20, but also just having Sunday school lessons that are kind of systematic theology on what this is, what people believe about that. Lesson 9, the resurrection, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Lesson 10, the final judgment and eternal punishment. And lesson 11, the new heavens and new earth, looking at Revelation 21 and 22. So as you can see, I'm very deliberately kind of doing systematic theology lessons on certain things. Um, Final tribulation, the millennium, but also exegeting biblical texts. I think that's very important. I don't usually exegete texts in Sunday school classes. I usually save it for the preaching as I'm working through whole books of the Bible. But it's essential, it's essential that we first exegete certain relevant biblical texts before settling on, and I say this with great fear and tremor, before settling on an eschatological system. I'm just air quoting everything there. Uh, all, like actually having a hermeneutical, a whole hermeneutical interpretive grid that we place over the Bible and then which we squish everything through. You don't want to be doing that. None of us want to be doing that. Even if you have a convinced sort of eschatological outlook, it's always, always a bad idea than to say, well, this is the, you know, this is the five points of 
Calvinism and salvation. I'm just going to squish every single text in the Bible through that grid. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. Don't do it. And don't do it specifically, I would say, with eschatology. Um, so we want to exegete texts in their context, have that link up with the rest of the Bible. Now, there are many debates, often heated debates, in the history of the church over this question of last things. Not so heated nowadays. Back in the 70s and 80s, oh, man, this is, this is what it was all about. Now people are like, oh, man. <laughs> um, we'll see about this, but we'll talk about some of those debates down the line. This lesson will begin with the aspects of Jesus' second coming with which all Christians agree. And then at the end, we're going to move on to one matter of disagreement. It's a big one. It's a good one. Uh, whether Jesus could return anytime, at any moment. Uh, I want to take a poll. All right. There are four answers, four options to this poll. I want you to be honest. Um, but the question is, could Jesus return in the next five seconds? Okay, here's your four options. Yes. No. Certain things have to happen first. It's complicated. We'll give you the Facebook relationship, okay? It's complicated, John. Four, I am an empty vessel. Fill me with knowledge. All right? All right, so who, who would vote then for, yes, Jesus could return in the next five seconds? Most people, okay? No, certain things have to happen first. It's complicated. <laughs> There's the weasels option right there. <laughs> and no one's an empty vessel here? Kill me with knowledge, Pastor John? Okay. <laughs> all right, so let's look at some stuff that we all agree on then. A, there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. Jesus often spoke about his return. Let me just read to you some text here, okay? Um, Matthew 24, 44. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. John 14, 3. He said, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. Acts 1.11, immediately after Jesus had ascended into heaven, two angels said to the disciples, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul taught the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Hebrews 9.28, the author of Hebrews wrote that Christ, quote, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. James 5.8, James writes, The coming of the Lord is at hand. 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. John writes in 1 John 3.2, When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Revelation 22.20, And the book of Revelation has frequent references to Christ's return, ending with Jesus' promise, Surely I am coming soon. And John's response, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20. This theme, then, is frequently mentioned throughout the New Testament and is the dominant hope of the New Testament church. The return of Christ is the dominant hope of the New Testament church. Um, I, you hear me say lots of times, be wearing your eschatological sunglasses through all of life. And part of that eschatology is the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to be living in the new heavens and new earth. Think about that often, Christian. That has to be influencing everything. 
Um, your, your light and momentary afflictions being weighed against that eternal weight of glory. That has, that has to be our great, great hope in life. Um, and we should actually break down each part of this. There will be a sudden, it'll be quick, and that's a personal, as in Jesus himself, the eternal son, not an emissary or something. Visible, not secret. You're going to, every eye will see him. Bodily, return of Christ. So not his spirit or some such thing. So there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I, I say the, uh, the visible, not secret part. If you're of the premillennial dispensational persuasion, then Jesus returns sort of in two steps. And that first return would be uh, secret, sort of invisible in that sense. So <clears throat> we'll look at that later on, though. But everybody would believe on that final day. There would be that. So uh, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Revelation 1.7. Any questions about that? Can you see where I'm going with this? Okay. B. We should eagerly long for Christ's return. John's response at the end of Revelation should characterize Christians' hearts in all ages. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be something we pray for. Revelation 22.20. Biblical Christianity trains us to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 12 to 13. What a great text that is. Awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. You're actually having deity tied, obviously, there to Christ. Titus 2, 12 to 13. The Apostle Paul says our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. The Aramaic term Maranatha, 1 Corinthians 16.22, similarly means, O Lord, come. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 16.22. But do, here's a question, do Christians eagerly long for Jesus' return? The more Christians are caught up, I think, enjoying the good things of this life, and the more we neglect a genuine Christian fellowship and personal relationship with Christ, then the less we will long for his return. Uh, on the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering in this life or persecution, who are elderly, who are infirm, uh, whose daily walk with Jesus Christ is vital and deep, they will have a more intense longing for our Lord's return. Uh, to some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for the return of Jesus Christ, the second advent, is a measure of our spiritual condition. Uh, It's also, it's just a good barometer of our spiritual health. It also gives some measure of, of the degree to which we see this world as it truly, really is, as God sees it, in bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. But does this mean, this might sound like a funny question, but it's, I'm not sure if anyone's dealing with this, but it's something that I've had to deal with in the past with people, so I'm going to bring it out here again. Does this mean with this return of Jesus Christ that we should not undertake long-term projects? If a scientist who is a Christian eagerly longs for Jesus' return, should they then begin a 10-year research project? 
Is that kind of like selling, selling the prophecy short? And it's like, oh, wait, I'm going to do everything in the short, short term because it, it could happen any second. I mean, a lot of you are saying Jesus could return the next five seconds, right? What impact does that have on the long-term plans in your life? Um, should a Christian begin a three-year seminary degree? What if Christ would return the day before graduation, before there was any chance to give a significant amount of, one, of t- one's time to actual ministry? Would that be sort of like time wasted? You could have, it could have been spent doing better things. Certainly, we should commit ourselves to long-term activities. Uh, it is precisely for this reason that Jesus does not allow us to know the actual time of his return. He wants us to be engaged in obedience to him, no matter what our walk of life is, up to the very moment of his return. To be ready for Christ's return, Matthew 24, 44, is to be faithfully obeying him in the present actively engage in whatever work he's called us to. Bloom where you're planted. You don't know the day or the hour when Jesus returns, so be faithful in the moment. Uh, and to all those people who are Christians, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were two years into a three-year seminary degree, and I have returned. That's absolutely fine. Well done, good and faithful servant. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 21. Questions about that? Comments? Full-blown lecture mode, all right? C, we do not know when Christ will return. Several passages indicate that we do not know and cannot know the time when Jesus will return. You're going to hear me talking a lot about the Olivet Discourse. Um, I think you can see in your hand where that is. But just, just note here how often Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21 are being referenced in this sort of thing, okay? And this, this is like the major eschatological section of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Um, so the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Matthew twenty four forty four. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Matthew twenty five thirteen. Moreover, Jesus said, "This is Mark thirteen thirty two. But on that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come." And it's really. Uh, an, an evasion of the force of these texts to say that we cannot know the day or the hour, but that we can know. We can know the month or the year. Now, some people actually argue that. They just say, like, I'm not getting down to the day or the hour, but it's going to be in the year 2011 for sure. You know, that kind of thing. Lots of people have argued that in the past. The fact remains that Jesus is coming at an hour you do not expect, Matthew 24, 44, and at, a, at an unexpected hour, Luke 12, 40. Since he will come at an unexpected time, we should be ready at all times for his return. The practical result of this is that anyone who claims to know specifically when Jesus is coming back is automatically to be considered wrong. Let's just, let me just give you that helpful guidance, okay? If someone knows, it says, I know specifically when Christ is returning, automatically you can think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. They're wrong. They're wrong. The Jehovah's Witnesses have made many predictions of specific dates for Christ's return, and all of them turn out to be wrong. Uh, But others in the history of the church have made such predictions as well, sometimes claiming new insight into biblical prophecies, and sometimes claiming to have received personal revelations from Jesus himself, indicating the time of his return. It's unfortunate that many people have been deceived by these claims, because if people are convinced that Christ will return, for example, within one month, let's say, or one year, but they will begin to withdraw then from long-term commitments. 
Uh, they will take their children out of school. They will sell their house. This, this happens, okay? They quit their job. They give up work on any long-term projects, whether in the church or elsewhere. And they may, have, uh, they may initially have an increased zeal for evangelism and prayer, but the unreasonable nature of their behavior will offset any evangelistic impact they may have. They look at that as being kooks. Moreover, they're simply disobeying the teaching of Scripture that the date of Christ's return cannot be known, which means that even their prayer and fellowship with God will be hindered as well. They're living in disobedience to that. In summary, anyone who claims to know the date on which Jesus will return from whatever source, prophecies, revelation, they open up the book of Daniel and just saw, oh, the third toe of this statue means this is it's happening now, COVID-19 or whatever, should be rejected as incorrect. Rejected as incorrect. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. Questions about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like some pseudo humility. It's like, look, I don't know everything, but yeah. Yeah, just time. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. D. All Christians agree on the final results of Christ's return. Now, no matter our differences on the details, all Christians who take the Bible as their final authority agree that the final and ultimate return of Christ's return will be uh, involved the judgment of unbelievers, the final reward of believers, and that believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and new earth for all eternity. Everyone's agreed on that. God the Father, God the, Holy, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will reign and will be worshipped in a never-ending kingdom with no more sin or sorrow or suffering. More details on that in the weeks to come. Nevertheless, E, there is disagreement over the details of future events. That's putting it mildly. Uh, Christians differ over all sorts of specific details leading up to and immediately following Jesus' return. Specifically, we differ over the nature of what's called the millennium. The relationship of Christ's return to the millennium, the sequence of Christ's return and the final tribulation period, or if there even is a final tribulation period, or if there even is a culminating antichrist figure. We disagree on that. And the question of the salvation of the Jewish people, and with that, the relationship between Jews who are saved and the church. Uh, but before we examine those questions in any detail, and we will be examining them in great detail in the weeks to come, Lord willing, it's important to affirm the genuine evangelical standing of those who have differing positions on these matters. Christians who hold to these various positions all agree that Scripture is inerrant, uh, it's authoritative, right? it's sufficient, it's clear, and we have a commitment to believe whatever is taught by Scripture. Our differences concern the interpretation of various passages related to these events, but our differences on these matters should be seen as matters of secondary importance, not as differences over primary doctrinal matters. Uh, nevertheless, so that's, that's why, be very careful about joining a church where the eschatology is laid out in the statement of faith 
and to be a member, you have to sign on to it. There are churches that are like that. There are seminaries that are like that. But that's different than a, ch- a local church saying, you can't be a member here unless you sign on to this brand of eschatology. No, don't, don't do that. That's not, that's not good. Um, nevertheless, it's worth our time to study these questions in detail. Doctrinal exactness is important. It's not just, oh, it's all a great mystery because it's from the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. You know, it's like, actually, what does, the, what does Scripture say? I want to know what God has for this universe in these last days. It's important to look into these things with humility. Um, we want to do it because, both because we may gain further insight into the nature of the events that God has planned and promised for us, and because there's still hope that our greater unity uh, will come about in the church when we agree to examine these issues in detail and to engage in discussion about them. Um, I think there's, I'm speaking now, if you want to, okay, where would you put New City Baptist Church into like, if you're going to pigeonhole our church? Well, you would, I guess you would say um, Reform Baptist, like in those circles, the Reform Baptist circles, and even just Reform circles perhaps, uh, but Reform Baptist, I think there's a reluctance on our part to really engage with some of this. I don't hear a whole lot about it. You look at you know the Gospel Coalition website or whatever it's going to be. I don't hear a lot about eschatology. I think I think my theory is my personal theory is that because of the seventies and the eighties, particularly in America, just like what was coming out, the books being published, just the absolute preoccupation with all things eschatological. I think we kind of felt burned by it, and now we're kind of like let's not even think about this. And um, I, I just don't see a lot of people talking. I don't hear talk of a lot of these kinds of issues, and it's important that we do talk about it. We want to kind of come to a consensus, a unity. Um, I think, I think uh, it's kind of like perhaps, again, what was happening in the, well, you can look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, but with, with the charismatic unit, uh, movement and, and Pentecostals, where a lot of people just like reacted, overreacted to it with like, okay, and not really concentrating on the, the, the beauty and the wonder of the Holy Spirit and his role in the Christian life. It was just there was too much emphasis on that side, so let's cut off all talk and study and, and, and longing for being filled with the Holy Spirit in, in, our, in our lives because they went too far. I think that's something that was happened here too. So hopefully we can turn that ship around. Maybe you disagree with that assessment of, of life, but Phoebe? It's never, it's never sought the church before. I don't know why it started. People couldn't care less about that. But I mean, it's the nature of the genre too. It's a lot of apocalyptic literature. You're dealing with like strange symbolism, and I think just people can kind of like, I don't really know. I don't. It looks very difficult. It's hard. It, it there's so many there's so many errors to the left and to the right, and you know Jesus is returning. There's going to be new heavens and new earth. We can get through life just knowing that, believing that, and nothing too too bad is going to happen. So there's no need then to really delve into the details. And uh, I just want to encourage us, no, delve into the details. And, and this could be, I think, eschatology, this is what I've seen in my own life, it's, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill over the decades. Um, start off slow. Just like, this could be a good place to start. You don't have to agree with everything that I'm saying, but maybe it'll, it'll just kind of uh, instigate some thought. Oh, I never actually knew that text was even in the Bible. Or that's how some people have taken that text. John goes this way, Quinn goes that way, Johnny goes that way. It's like, okay, what do I think? I'm going to think about that next time you come across it in your devotions. Or I heard this sermon, or I read this blog post. You add more and more snow to it, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you actually can say, I, I have a, 
Lord willing, I have a, a relatively settled outlook on actually the events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. I think that's a good thing to be striving for. Don't make it the first thing in your Christian life. If you just got baptized last week, the last thing you want to be doing is saying, let me just figure out the book of Revelation and eschatology. It's not what you want to be doing. There's other things that are, in a sense, more important, um, but this is important. Could Christ come back at any time? One of the significant areas of disagreement over the question of whether Jesus could return is this. Could it be at any moment, any time? On the one hand, there are many passages encouraging us to be ready because Jesus will return at an hour we do not expect. On the other hand, there are several passages that speak of events that will transpire before Jesus returns. So, verses predicting a sudden and unexpected coming of Jesus. Uh, I want you to just feel the, the cumulative force of this, all right? We're just going to just kind of read through this. And again, just, just notice how many of these come from the Olivet Discourse. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Um, so, again, that's Matthew 24, 25, uh, Luke 21, Mark 13. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 42. Matthew 24, 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Mark 13, 32. But of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know, know when the time will come. Uh, this is Matthew 13, 34. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or at cock crow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Luke twelve forty. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. O Lord, come. Philippians 3, 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also, uh, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Titus 2, 12 to 13. Training us to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 25, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 5, 7 to 9, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. 2 Peter 3, 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and all the works that are upon it will be burned up. Revelation 1.3, the time is near. Revelation 22.7, behold, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense 
uh, to repay everyone for what he has done. Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Okay, now you just read through that litany of texts and you're thinking, man, okay, if there, if there weren't any passages in the New Testament about events that could precede Christ's return, you just think, okay, it could happen any second. Two seconds from now, Jesus Christ could return. Half, the, half of you think that he could, and I understand completely. Many Christians believe that. Uh, but something important to realize is that biblical prophets often speak in terms of what's called prophetic foreshortening, which sees future events but does not see intervening time before those events occur. And I give some examples of this, all right? But George Ladd writes this. The prophets were little interested in chronology, and the future was always viewed as imminent. The Old Testament prophets blended the near and the distant perspectives so as to form a single canvas. Biblical prophecy is not primarily three-dimensional, but two. It has height and breadth, but is little concerned about depth, i.e. the chronology of future events. The distant is viewed through the transparency of the immediate. It is true that the early church lived in expectancy of the return of the Lord, and it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expectancy of the end. So if you think of, there's been a good illustration, I think, of this. If you think of a mountain range, if you go out to Alberta and you can see the mountains in the distance, right? And you can see mountains here and you see the, the caps behind there and then there and there. That all looks like it's, hey, that's like, you know, within a sort of a five mile, <laughs> you know, length. No, there's hundreds of miles between those mountaintops. Um, that's how biblical prophecy works. But you don't see that depth. You don't see, everything's in the immediate. Um, think of this. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. What are the crowds shouting? Hosanna, son of David, King David, come, come into our city. Thank you. <laughs> and what were they thinking? The Old Testament Jewish expectation is the Messiah comes and he establishes his kingdom. Boom. Immediately. Right there. Uh, the Messiah judges the wicked and he blesses the righteous. Boom. Immediately. So Pontius Pilate, to their thinking, was on the verge probably of having his head cut off. If Jesus is the Messiah, that's what he's going to be doing any minute now. And yes, the Messiah did come, and he did establish his kingdom, right? The already here, not yet come kingdom. That was a, that was a, a, a real mind blower for people at the time. They didn't expect that. They expected an instantaneous, cataclysmic arrival of the kingdom of God. And one day, Jesus will come, and he will judge the wicked and bless the righteous, but it's already been 2,000 years, right? Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be 6,000 more. <clears throat> but what about this scenario? This might sound more scandalous, I don't know, but Jesus returns from heaven. The dead in Christ rise to meet him in the air. And uh, the Christians who are alive at that time also are transformed. They rise, meet him in the air, but the dead go first. And then boom, Judgment Day. And then, the new heavens and new earth. In very short order, right? Not necessarily. Not all Christians believe that. Uh, many Christians think that there's more mountain range between Jesus' return and the final judgment. They, they call it the millennium. We'll get to that. Uh, Peter also reminds us that the Lord has a different perspective on time than we do. 
so that soon with him may not be what we expect, right? But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Second Peter 3, 8 to 9. Now, the other set of texts to be considered tell us of several events which will precede the time of Jesus' return. And you can see this in your handout. Events that precede Christ's return in Pastor John's opinion. All right? I would argue the coming of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion, the final tribulation and the salvation of Israel. Now, people can look at all those. We're going to look at there's, there's text backing all those things up, right? Now, people can look at that and say, there, you can look at this kind of literally in the sense of actually, yes, there is a coming, culminating Antichrist figure. The man of lawlessness. There is actually a culminating time of persecution against the church. There actually is a real time where um, that last generation of Jews believes in Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Those things haven't happened yet, but they literally will in the future. Or it can be looked at as being um, these things already have happened or are happening now or is typical of the whole interadvental period. So things like the coming of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion. People in the past have looked at things like uh, the figure of the Pope as being the Antichrist. The reformers were very big on this. Although interestingly, John Calvin was not. Um, He didn't believe that. And he never wrote a book, a commentary on the book of Revelation. It's thought because he'd be kind of letting the side down because everyone assumed the Pope was the Antichrist and he didn't. Anyway, but you can see, okay, well, if the Pope's the Antichrist, you got this kind of Europe-centric view of life and of the Christian world, which is definitely there with that. And the final tribulation actually is sort of the persecution and the hardships of the whole interadvental period of the church is going through for the last 2,000 years. And then you have the salvation of Israel, and Israel is, the true Israel is the church, it's Gentiles and Jews of all, you know, all believing in Jesus Christ, then that's to say you could theoretically look at this and say, well, then Jesus Christ could return in five seconds because that's actually how these texts then are sort of explained. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm actually thinking I'm going to go for the literal kind of thing. I think these things haven't happened yet. So, but it, it comes down to exegesis. So the coming of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that Christ will not come unless the man of sin is first revealed and then the Lord will destroy him at his coming. So... Um, This man of lawlessness is identified with the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13 and is sometimes called the Antichrist, the final and worst of the series of Antichrists mentioned in 1 John 2.18. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Many have come even now. Um, So then Paul writes, I want you to turn here. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 10. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 10. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. They said that actually they were believing that there was this, this non-personal, non-visible bodily return of Jesus, like non-bodily, had already occurred, and they actually they were living in the eschaton somehow. He's like... You heard that supposedly from a prophecy from me or from a word or a letter. It's not true. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, there's a good word, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I would argue this is the culminating Antichrist figure. Don't remember when I was with you that I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives these who are per- those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. And you should know, New City, that I believe uh, in an especially intense and universal time of tribulation, I believe it's predicted uh, for the very end of history. Is predicted both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The final tribulation will involve both unprecedented worldwide persecution of God's people by anti-Christian forces, as well as the pouring out of God's wrath on an increasingly wicked world. Both those things. This is called the final tribulation. That's going to be lessons three and four. Another event, in Pastor John's opinion, that precedes Christ's return is the salvation of Israel. Paul talks about the fact that many Jews have not trusted in Christ, but he says that sometime in the future, a large number would be saved. Um, so if you look at uh, Romans eleven twelve, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for Gentiles, how much greater will their full inclusion bring? Uh, Romans eleven twenty five twenty six. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, based on texts such as these, many Christians feel that Jesus simply cannot return any second now. Uh, The question we want to ask is this. Is Jesus' second coming tied down necessarily, necessarily to an any second kind of thing? with nothing that's allowed before it? And if so, starting when? I put down there after Jesus' ascension, after Pentecost, after Peter dies, after AD 70. I'm going to, well, wait, why are you asking those questions? Well, let's look at some specific texts here. What does John, Jesus say to Peter in John 21? After the exchange, do, not, do love me, feed my sheep, and all that. Then Jesus says to Peter, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Okay, guys, we must either conclude that that was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled and therefore Jesus couldn't have come back until it was fulfilled or we must conclude that it was a conditional prophecy and Jesus could have come back before it was fulfilled, right? I mean, those are, I think, honestly, the two options. The text says this is the death 
by which Peter would glorify God. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're going to die as an old man and glorify me in your death, provided, of course, I don't come back first. What I'm arguing is Jesus' return couldn't take place instantaneously. Peter had to become an old man and die first. And he's still a spry fisherman in John 21. Also, what about those texts that speak with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Uh, the thing of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, the, the kind of, Jesus talks about these birth pains of the interadvental period, and they're characterized by continuous international rivalry, natural disasters, spiritual conflict, opposition, worldwide preaching, spiritual leaders who are false, and the destruction of Jerusalem, a particularly sharp birth pain, which occurred in 70 AD. And then, but then, yet even so, we wait. Jesus has warned us, these are the beginnings of the birth pains. The end is not yet. So before 70 AD, could Jesus have returned or not? Do you see why I'm asking this? The text says Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus doesn't say Jerusalem will be destroyed, provided, of course, I don't come back first. Jesus' return couldn't have taken place instantaneously. He made this prophecy in AD 30. Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years later. Or what about when Jesus says the gospel must be preached in the whole world before the end comes? Again, he doesn't say, unless, of course, I return. Um, and even if the whole world doesn't mean, by, mean what we mean by the whole world, even if it's something more general, just like, like not just Jewish circles, but also Gentiles. I mean, obviously, it isn't the whole world. They haven't gotten to China yet. You know, right? but, but it was the whole Roman world. Uh, but even if the whole world only means that, it didn't take place one day after Pentecost. I mean, it took at least a couple of decades. So during that period, could Jesus have returned or not? And bear in mind, it's during that period as well that we have these many texts written telling us to be ready for the Lord's return because he could come soon. There wasn't this like embarrassed realization. There's like a, there's a there's a tension there, but it's an unembarrassed tension. Jesus himself was speaking that way forty years before Jerusalem fell. I would argue, I'm going to close with this. I would argue that the New Testament exhortation to be ready at any time is always of the sort that Jesus could come in any generation. His coming is near. His coming is impending. It could happen in your lifetime. Be ready. But first, the man of lawlessness must be revealed, uh, the final tribulation, and the salvation of Israel. Uh, Of course, what we need to do now is to go to those very texts in their context and exegete them. And that's what we're going to do starting next week with the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, which includes Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Okay, that's the end. Questions about that? Yes? So, are you reading it literally? Does that have to do with, like, it's not a problem to read a text that we read the Bible, it's not a revelation, or like, to see Daniel? So, is that part of why you read it? Yeah, I, I said read that literally in a sense of those events will literally happen. Not necessarily that you would read the genre that they occur in literalistically, in that kind of sense. I just mean there will literally be a culminating Antichrist figure. Um, There will literally be this final great persecution against the church. There will literally be a great day in gathering of Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the end comes. uh, Not necessarily saying read the book of Revelation and that kind of literature literalistically or literally. 
So, stuff to think about. And again, you don't have to agree with what I'm saying here. There are things that we must all agree on if we're Christians. But this can just be a good way to introduce you maybe to some other ways of looking at eschatology that can, again, kind of pack more snow onto that snowball as it rolls through your life over the decades, all right? So next week, Lord Billing, the Olivet Discourse, looking primarily at Luke 21.